0: The best-selling book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, totally revolutionized the lives of millions of people, and one of the habits that Stephen Covey talked about in the book is a great summary of our podcast topic today. Hi, I'm Yvonne Prenn, and welcome to Bible 805. The habit that I'm talking about is his habit number two, begin with the end in mind. Join me as we look at the challenge of how to begin with the end in mind as we look at the books of Zephaniah and Joel in our podcast today. Here's our plan for today. First, we're going to very briefly go over the historical setting of the messages of Zephaniah and Joel. Now, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on the history because their time and their messages are pretty similar to what we've been talking about. Basically, it's repent, change your way of life because judgment is coming. But they also, in each of the books, spend significant time talking about the phrase, the day of the Lord. And that's what we really want to talk about about today. Now when we talk about the Day of the Lord, I want us to have a little bit of what I call sort of an emotional adjustment time before we start. Because the Day of the Lord means it's the time that God will judge humanity, both in contemporary disasters that happen in the Old Testament, and we can look at even in our own times, but also in his final judgment of the world. Now when we say that, many of us tend to avoid this topic because it's kind of scary we would prefer a much happier image. We, we don't want to think about what the Bible describes as, as the end of time because in a lot of ways we've been influenced by the media. We think of all of the disaster movies we've seen and the chaos and the floods and the flames and all these terrible things. But I don't want us to look at the day of the Lord in that way. So before we talk about the end of time, God's judgment, I want to tell you a little story that totally changed how I looked at these things. This happened to me a long, long time ago. I was actually in sixth grade, and I had my very own first Sunday school class. It was in California, and we were living near a military base. Now, I'd started helping in Sunday school when I was old enough to let them help me do it but this was my very own class and I don't remember exactly what the lesson was that day but I remember it seemed like some of the kids were being really naughty and I wanted to put the fear of God into them I think they were third or fourth graders and I was a big sixth grader and so you know I was going to do that and so here's what I said to him I said you know I said, Jesus is going to come back, and how will you feel if you're acting badly then? And because I knew that most of them had fathers who were in the military, I said, now it's like this. I said, imagine your daddy's on TDY, that stands for a temporary assignment, and they did that all the time, Uh, and he comes home when you aren't expecting him. Won't you feel terrible if you're doing something naughty? And I thought that would really scare him. But this one little girl immediately answered me, and she said, Oh, no, she said. I'd just be so happy to see him. And I've often thought back to that. I thought, that tells me everything I need to know about the end times. We won't be afraid. We will be so happy to see him. But to make our joy complete, not only then, but during our lives now, we want to live in a way that is really pleasing to him now. Not to make us afraid, but to help us live in a really meaningful way. So we want to look at that and as the end that we're going towards so let me just very briefly talk about the historical setting of Zephaniah and Joel and then we will jump into a more detailed study on the day of the Lord we're not sure about when Joel was written but I'm talking about it with Zephaniah because both of them talk quite a bit about the day of the Lord. A number of years prior to this time, Hezekiah was a really good king. He died. His son Manasseh, who was very, very evil, came to the throne. Unfortunately, he lived, he ruled for 55 years, a long rule, and he brought back all the pagan gods to Israel. He eventually had a crisis, a spiritual crisis in his life. He repented, but it was too late. His son Amnon, he actually named after an Egyptian god, he was a terrible king also. And he was assassinated after only two years. Then his son Josiah becomes king. He is the last good king in Judah. And after he dies, and I'll talk about that in just a minute, things just deteriorate. And very quickly after that, Judah goes into captivity. But Josiah was a good king. He became king when he was only eight years old. But from, the, from a very young age, he followed God. When he was a young man, he decided to restore the temple. It had fallen into ruin. He finds the book of the law. There's great repentance in the land. He takes, he um, gets priests to go out and teach it. The prophetess Huldah, who is one of the few female Prophets in the Bible. She commends him for it. She says that God is very pleased, and because he humbled himself, judgment would not come in his time. He continues to serve God the rest of his life. He reinstitutes Passover. Sadly, though, he doesn't end real well. Um, it, there was a, a big battle going on, and the king of Egypt comes out to fight actually Babylon and these different things. And for some reason, Josiah has Kind of an issue with pride at that time. He goes out to meet him. The king says, "You know, don't don't even try to fight. This isn't your battle." He does it anyway, and he's killed. Sadly, there is just spiritual deterioration after his death and Judah does go into captivity. Now, let's look at one of the prominent themes in these books of prophecy at the time. First, let me just talk a little bit about Joel. We're not sure exactly when it was written, but again, the topic is about the Day of the Lord. And remember, in the prophetic books, there's both the near fulfillment, and then a later one. And in the book of Joel, he talks about this plague of Lotus. This was the near fulfillment of the Day of the Lord where they just devastated the land and destroyed things but this was a foreshadowing of the final destruction that would come and here's some passages from the book of Joel he says "Alas for that day for the day of the Lord is near it will come like destruction from the Almighty let all who live in the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes. Such was never in ancient times, or will never be in ages to come. And in Zephaniah, he repeats the same thing. The day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That will be a day of wrath. Neither their silver nor their gold, will be able to save them save them on the day of God's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. But then Zephaniah, as happens so often in the prophets, then also has the promise of hope, where he says, for those who trust in God, the Lord God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Now, the day of the Lord, this idea of God coming in judgment, is not only in these books, but it's repeated in other passages. And I'm going to share them, and then I will talk about why this topic is so important and application for us today. In Isaiah 2.12 it says, For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty, upon everyone that is lifted up, and he will be brought low. In Amos it says, Woe to those that desire the day of the Lord. What is that for you? The day of the Lord is darkness, not light. He was speaking to people who were really proud and who said, Well, we're always going to win. We're always going to conquer our enemies. It doesn't matter how we treat the poor and the downtrodden and how we disobey all these laws. No, we can do what we want to because we're God's chosen people. And Amos is saying, No, (laughs) that is not what's going to happen. You will be judged for disobeying the law. In Obadiah it says, Says, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto you. Thy reward shall return upon your head again. Judgment for in this case, how Edom had treated Israel. It is a very consistent warning in the Old Testament, but also the warning is repeated in the New Testament. In Acts 2:20. Peter talks about the day of the Lord, where he says, he repeats the Old Testament passage, where it says, The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, it says, Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction, destruction, will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Second Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it laid more. And there are many, many other passages that again repeat this idea. And on the website I will actually have a list of them. There's an article on the web of, I believe it's something like 86 passages in the Bible that talk about the Day of the Lord. Well, why is this so important? Well, first of all, the idea of the Day of the Lord of there being a specific ending time the end that we need to consider in how we live our lives this is one of the unique characteristics of Christianity you need think about this and a lot of times people don't Christianity is a very linear religion it has a clear beginning in the beginning God created in the end he will sum things up now it has a clear beginning, a clear end, and along the way, there are verified historical markers. We've looked at many of these in the Old Testament, and we will continue with them on our study. But the history that we look at, it's history with an end point. Now, this is very, very different from many other religions. Hinduism, Buddhism, again, many of the sort of vague New Age thoughts about religion that many people have. All of these religions see existence as a circular thing. They don't have a final judgment. Things just go on. They repeat now, and not to be really flippant about this, but reincarnation. You know, when you think about it, it's kind of a series of endless do-overs. If you didn't get it right this time, you have an opportunity. The world has an op- another opportunity. You know, just think—it's just kind of this circular thing. But Christianity sp- says very clearly, no. Reality is not a consistent series of reincarnations, do-overs, getting to repeat things if you didn't get it right. In Hebrews 9.27, it says very clearly, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this is the judgment. No do-overs. We need to live our life now with the end in mind. It's kind of like I thought, as if you were taking a class without grades, you know, if you were just auditing a class, you really wouldn't care if you show up, if you do your assignments, Um, there's no test to study for, it doesn't really matter how you live. But, if you know there's going to be a test, if you know there's going to be an end point, you take things seriously. And I was taught that as a very young child. One of the things that my grandmother gave me, and I've, I've shared this many times in my classes and other places, but she gave me a little plaque, and I'm looking at it right now as I'm recording this, and it says Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And when we remember that that's what our life's about, that's the end that we're looking forward to, and that's why we live the way we live, it should make a difference. Let's look in a little more detail at what the Day of the Lord is described as in the Bible. It actually has two purposes. The one that most people are familiar with is that it's a time to punish wickedness. And that's obvious. That's, that's when God just says, okay, I'm finished with it it's done. But it's also a time to purify and restore and reward God's people. In all of these prophecies in the past, God always talked about a time of restoration. In the book of Joel, when he talked about the locust hordes, he also talked about how he would restore what the locust had eaten. He would restore the days that were destroyed. And God will do that for us. We don't always know how, but in eternity, he's promised to make all things right when jesus returns every wrong will be righted justice will be done but between now and then god tells people how they are supposed to live now knowing that god would ultimately bring healing and restoration the prophets reminded the people of the covenant they made with god and how they should live as his people now some did some didn't. Now when we look back at these Old Testament stories, we know that everything that the prophets prophesied came true, both in judgment the people were ultimately taken into captivity in Babylon but also restoration and in the coming weeks we'll be talking about how he took care of the people even when they were under judgments and how they finally came back to the land. Now the application for us is that we are told, remember I read you passages both out of the Old Testament and out of the New Testament about the day of the Lord. The final day of the Lord is coming, and we need to be aware of it, and we need to live in a certain way. So let me read you some passages now with some final reminders of how we ought to be acting. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 4, it says, But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You're all children of the light and children of the day. We don't belong to the night or the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive Salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Again, such a wonderful reminder that as we look ahead to the day of the Lord, be encouraged. Don't be afraid. Don't be timid. Don't be whatever. Look forward to it with joy. And let me talk a little bit about his reminder here in a number of places, and then I'll share some other verses with this, where he talks about being sober. Now, in the Greek, of course, it means don't get drunk, sober as we use it. But also, the definition in the Greek goes on to say that to be sober in the Bible means to be calm. Collected in spirit, to be temperate, dispassionate, circumspect. In First Peter five eight, it says, "Be sober." Be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. We're supposed to approach life in this vigilant way, because we know what life is all about. We need to live our life seriously, and this doesn't mean to be joyless, but on the other hand, I'm really saddened today. It seems like so much in the media just takes culture and life so flippantly, everything's a joke, everything's dumb, we make fun of, we mock everything. And as believers, we really shouldn't do that. Um, Another passage in Peter, let me, I read part of it earlier, but I'll read it in a little more detail. Um, It says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? blameless, and at peace with him. Now, that challenge to be spotless, blameless, and at peace is so wonderful. And part of that, again, this idea of don't be all riled up, uh, just be very calm, be temperate be at peace because God's got it under control. And just one little comment I wanted to make too. Hank Hanegraaff has a lot of writings on this in his Bible Answer Man um, website. But one of the things too, when we talk about the destruction of the earth, and he explains this because there's a lot of theological argument and I don't have time to go into all of it, but is the cosmos going to be destroyed or will it simply be renewed? Because there are many passages that talk about how all of creation is groaning until the day of restoration, and things like this. And what Hank Hanegraaff says, and I, I think this is really great. And without going into again all of the studies on it, I agree with his conclusion, where he says, not only might we rightly conclude that the cosmos will be resurrected, not a lot, not annihilated, on the basis of Christ's conquest over Satan, but the Greek word used by Peter to designate the newness of the cosmos is kaienos, meaning new in quality not in kind, a cosmos existing in continuity with the present creation. As many have put it, Um. well, I'll get to that in a minute, let me finish his quote. Put another way, the earth will be thoroughly transformed, not totally terminated. When a flood destroys an island, it does not cease to exist, nor will the earth when it is renewed by fire. As many other theologians have said, it will be... As if Eden is recreated, the earth is will be recreated to be what God intended it to be. Now, as we look towards this time, we need to look towards it not only for ourselves, but also how others will react at this time. And this is a really interesting quote that... Um, I thought about quite a lot, and in fact, I used to end my church communication seminars with this quote because I wanted people to realize how tremendously important the work was that they were doing to communicate the gospel message to others. And no matter what you're doing in a secular life or a church life or through your prayers or whatever, think about this quote where he says, God will invade. But I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when he does. When that happens, it is the end of the world. When the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade all right, but what is the good of saying you're on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something it never entered your head to conceive comes crashing in, something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, It will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There is no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we have really chosen whether we realized it before or not. Now, today, this moment, is our chance to choose the right side. We need to remember that everybody needs to make that decision. And you never know when you might have the opportunity to say some even little thing that might get somebody to think about it. I'm going to tell you about another little story. This was had to do also when I was teaching church communication seminars, and I was flying all over the country and all this. Got up one morning, and I was checking out of my hotel. It was a fairly smallish hotel in South Bend, Indiana. And for some reason, I had to leave a book there at the front desk for someone to pick up later. And it was obviously this Christian book. It was one of the books that I'd written. And when I gave it to the clerk, he, he or the checkout person, he looked at it, and he, he was one of these kind of, well, kind of snarky young men. And he just looked at it, and he goes, do you really believe this stuff? And I just said, yeah, I do. And he kind of sniffed or made some remark, and then I said, you know, You really ought to think about this, about Jesus, about Christianity, because I said, you know, it's a whole lot better to meet him as Savior now than to meet God as judge later. And he kind of looked at me, and he kind of went, ooh. And his whole attitude changed. And the shuttle was waiting for me to take me to the airport, and I had to dash out. But as I was leaving, he said, I I never thought about that before. I still pray for that young man, and I really hope that I see him someday in the kingdom. But we I remember that story, and I just share it to say, you never know when God might prompt you just to say some little thing that will help someone see that this isn't all there is. We have an end point that they're going to tell them about, you know, the books, the seven habits of highly effective people or whatever. Consider the end before you make another decision on how you're living your life. Now someday, as I've said, it'll all come to a close for us. And one of my favorite passages on this is at the end of the series of the Chronicles of Narnia. And they end in this way where it says there was a real railway accident. Aslan's speaking to the children who um, have been through this whole series. He says, the term is over, the holidays have begun, the dream is ended, This is the morning, all their life in this world, and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. The future, the end we're working towards, you see, really isn't an end at all it's the day of the lord it's the best that's going to happen we shouldn't worry we shouldn't be afraid we should be thankful we should be anticipating we should be looking forward to the time when our savior our lord our friend perhaps in some ways the father we never had comes home and we will be so happy to see him That's all for now. Please check out the notes from this lesson and the other materials that are on www.bible805.com. Please subscribe to the podcast so that you won't miss any of our series on going through the Bible and do tell your friends about it so they can be encouraged as they learn more about God. Now, until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey, to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen.